0: Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the podcast about Texas history, culture, and everything Texan. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and this is episode one. For episode one, I thought I'd combine Texas history with my current service as a judge and talk about the first judges of Texas. Now, Texas has a lot of judges. We have state trial courts, county trial courts, justice of the peace courts, state court of appeals, which is what I'm on, Two Supreme Courts, one called the Supreme Court of Texas and one called the Court of Criminal Appeals, were a big state with lots of people, and that means lots of court cases. But it hadn't always been this way. So let's go back to the 1820s and get wise about Texas. Now you'd think there'd be one first judge of Texas, but neither lawyers nor Texans would ever make things that easy. The first judge of the Republic of Texas was Benjamin Cromwell Franklin, but we're going to get to him in a minute, because I can't call him the first judge in Texas. For that, we've got to go a little further back to the 1820s. Now, you'll recall that Stephen F. Austin settled 300 families on a land grant referred to as Austin's Colony. Austin's first colonists began arriving in December 1821, and for reference, the capital of Austin's colony was the town of San Felipe de Austin, and you'll have to pardon my pronunciation, Austin's colony was governed like other Mexican settlements of the time. A town council, which was called an Ayuntamiento, governed the settlement. Again, please excuse my pronunciation. The Ayuntamiento was headed by an individual titled the Alcalde. Now, the Alcalde was the chief executive of the settlement, and he had functions like a mayor, a judge, and a sheriff. He had all of those sorts of duties. Another member of the Ayuntamiento was called the Sindico Procurador. Now, this person was sort of like a city attorney. And into this system walked one of Austin's colonists, a gentleman named Josiah Hughes Bell. Now, Josiah Hughes Bell was born on August 22, 1791, in the Chester District of South Carolina. The Chester District was north of present-day Columbia, South Carolina. His father died when he was only five years old, and at age 11, he was apprenticed to two uncles who were tailors and hat makers in Nashville, Tennessee. He moved to Missouri and became a justice of the peace in the Bellevue Township of Missouri in 1813, and he also joined the military. He left the military in 1815 and went back to hat making and fur trading. Sometime in 1818, he sold his farm and got married. He married a lady named Mary Eveline McKenzie, who was originally from Kentucky, and it was during this time in Missouri that he probably got to know Moses Austin, who was the father of Stephen F. Austin. Moses Austin lived in Missouri during this time, and in fact, Moses Austin had founded the Bank of St. Louis. The newlywed Bells left Missouri, and they settled in Natchitoches, Louisiana. His acquaintance with Austin, though, led to him bringing his wife and growing family to Texas with Stephen F. Austin in 1821. Now Bell family lore has it that he crossed the Sabine on April 22, 1821, which, if that's true, meant he, he beat Stephen F. Austin into Texas. That's how early he came. The Bell family settled on New Year Creek near Old Washington. At this time, Bell served as the Sindico Procurador, the city attorney, For Austin's colony. And a year later, in 1822, he became the alcalde, which meant he had judicial duties. So we're going to call Josiah Hughes Bell the first judicial officer in Texas during colonization. Now, he was obviously a trusted advisor to Stephen Austin if he was put in those important positions. In fact, when Austin traveled to Mexico from 1822 to 1823, Bell was left in charge of the colony. And when Austin was arrested by the Mexican government in 1834, Bell called a meeting and drew up a document petitioning for his release. Later, Bell moved down to his land grant on the lower Brazos River near Varners Creek in 1824. He immediately constructed docks and freight handling facilities and storage facilities on the Brazos. Now back then, if you had those sorts of facilities on the river, you were immediately in business and people would bring their goods to your area. They called that area on Bell's Grant, they called it Bell's Landing. Bell also grew sugar cane, he built a hotel and he also constructed a school. His settlement, which is what it had become, was known as Columbia and actually served for a brief time as the capital of the Republic of Texas. Now we're going to need to cover in an upcoming episode how we ended up with present-day East and West Columbia, but suffice to say Bell sold his land in 1837, and he moved to the town of West Columbia, where he died in 1838. He's buried in the Columbia Cemetery in West Columbia. So we're going to call Josiah Hughes Bell the first judge of Colonial Texas. Now, most po- folks think about Texas as really coming into being after independence, so let's talk about the first judicial officer of the Republic of Texas, who was named Benjamin Cromwell Franklin. The answer to the first question and the obvious question when you hear his name is, yes, he was named after the Ben Franklin of American history, who also happened to be his great uncle. He was born in 1805 in Georgia, and he went to Franklin College in Athens, Georgia, and was admitted to the bar in 1827. He then set up a law practice in Macon, Georgia. Eventually, and these are the words of an author named Lynch, Franklin's quote, sympathies were excited in the cause of Texas independence. Close quote. I love that quote. His sympathies were excited in the cause of Texas independence. He arrived in Texas in 1835 at the port of Velasco. Now Velasco at that time was in southeast Brazoria County and its old Velasco is now encompassed by an area called Surfside Beach. He joined some expeditions against the Indians and he was present at a public meeting to discuss the future of Texas, guess where that public meeting was? It was in the town of Columbia, Josiah Bell's town. In December of 1835, he was also present in Gonzales uh, during that time when the Texas Army was organized. He actually helped organize a company of men under a gentleman named Robert Calder, and they fought in. Or they were assigned to Edward Burleson's regiment. He was commissioned to captain on April seventh, eighteen thirty-six but didn't have time to raise his own company then, so he fought at San Jacinto as a private under his former commander, Robert Calder. So Franklin was involved in the organization of the Army uh, right during and immediately after the Siege of Behar in December of 1835, and then we skip ahead to the Battle of San Jacinto where he's fighting as a private. After the battle was over, On April 23rd, 1836, which was two days after the battle, Captain Franklin was assigned a very interesting task, and this is a story that's not much discussed in Texas history, so it's the story I want to focus on about Judge Franklin. Secretary of War Thomas Rusk asked Captain Franklin to go to Galveston and tell the interim government of Texas that the Battle of San Jacinto had been won. The interim government had fled the advancing Mexican army, And they were in Galveston on the east end of Galveston Island preparing to depart for New Orleans along with the ships of the Texas Navy. Somebody had to go down there and tell them that the battle had been won and Texas was free. And that was the task that was assigned to Benjamin Cromwell Franklin. Captain R.S. Calder, who also, by the way, was later a judge, uh, recollected that assignment because he went with Franklin. And he called Franklin a major And when he was writing that, he wrote in 1877 his recollections of the trip. And that may have been an error, or maybe Franklin was promoted, we don't know. Either way, when Franklin got that assignment from Rusk, he approached Calder and told him he was going to go to Galveston and had a five-day pass and asked Calder if he would go with him. Now, Franklin was being a little crafty because Calder had a girl in Galveston that he was pretty sweet on, and so Franklin knew that Calder would go with him. Sure enough, Calder got a five-day pass, and uh, they were going to get to Galveston. Now, the only way they could figure out to get to Galveston, or the quickest way, was to grab the only available naval vessel they could find, which was a small skiff, or a rowboat. And so, they were due to go to Galveston, and all they had, from San Jacinto, and all they had was a rowboat. Well, two privates, one was named Robert Moore and... The name of the other one's unknown. Saw what they were up to and decided that this was an opportunity to get five days off from the army. So the two privates came up to Franklin and Calder and said, "Look, we—if you'll get us passes and take us to Galveston with you, we'll do the rowing of the boat." Well, if you're about to leave from San Jacinto, which is near Houston, and you're going to have to row a boat all the way across Galveston Bay to Galveston, I would, I'm would i sure that some free labor sounded pretty good. So they took them up on their offer, and they were so eager to leave, they didn't even grab food or water. Um, Judge Calder recalls that they simply trusted to chance. So they departed about 10 in the morning, and they proceeded south to a place owned by a man named Ruth. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't find any food there. Ruth claimed that he had been cleaned out by the Mexican Army, who had marched north from New Washington and would have passed Ruth's place on the way to San Jacinto. And Ruth also said that his slaves had left and joined the Mexican Army. So Calder at that point recalls that the small traveling party was in a sullen humor, and they proceeded to Spillman's Island in their rowboat. Now Spillman's Island is a sandy flat island in the middle of what is now the Houston Ship Channel. And it's right off Morgan's Point, which at the time of San Jacinto was called New Washington. So if you anybody is driving from Houston to Baytown and you go across the Fred Hartman Bridge and you look to the south, you're going to see Spillman's Island. Spillman's Island was originally granted to Henry Lewis in 1830, and it was sold by the executor of his estate to James Spillman in 1835. Now, I warned you in the introductory episode of this podcast that I was going to go into those kind of details, so there you go, there's your detail. In any event, um, Captain Calder, Major, or Captain Franklin, and the two boatmen landed at Spillman's, and nobody was there. Mr. Spillman had fled, apparently. But um, luckily, they found what they really wanted, which was food. They found two barrels of cornmeal, and they found an amazing number of chickens up in the trees and everywhere, and Calder was specific to note that the party of four people ate seven chickens while they were on Spillman's Island. So off they go in their rowboat, down what is now the Ship Channel, then the San Jacinto River, and out into the open Galveston Bay, which presented them a problem. Galveston Bay, if you've seen it, is largely unprotected and it can get pretty rough. So the wind was against them and the water was rough. The volunteers, the two privates that said that they would row their boat in exchange for a trip to Galveston, suggested that they just tie up and sit around until the tide and the winds would help them cross to Galveston. But Calder and Franklin were very excited. They wanted to be the first ones down to Galveston with news of the great victory at San Jacinto. So they decided to handle this problem by towing the boat close to the shore until the conditions improved. To do this, they had to have somebody sit in the boat and another person walk along the shore holding the rope, towing the boat. Now this is a pretty good method as long as you're not the one that has to tow the boat. Uh, the two volunteers, the two privates, decided Galveston was not an attractive destination anymore and that that was not what they signed up for, so they quit. And Franklin and Calder were on their own to haul the boat down around the bay. Franklin was still very excited to tell the provisional government that the battle had been won. um, And that excitement, according to Calder, was a glorious incentive to exertion. So off they went. As they proceeded along the coast, they saw the steamship Laura. Now, the steamship Laura is going to appear in several episodes. It was one of the steamships that was very active in the Texas Revolution, and it was proceeding from Buffalo Bayou, or to Buffalo Bayou from Galveston. And they were on the shore of the bay, and they were trying to signal the Laura, but they weren't able to hail her. So they kept going, and they eventually reached Redfish Bar. Redfish Bar was inhabited by the Edwards family, who had fled the approaching army. Uh, Redfish Bar, by the way, is uh, formed by an oyster reef, and it extends out basically from San Leone, Texas, uh, off Texas Highway 146 and out to Redfish Island. I presume when Calder was writing about the Edwards family living in the area, he was probably talking about present-day San Leone. The men did discover an African gentleman who did not speak or understand English, but they managed to acquire some food and, lucky for them, some cigars. Now, they had been traveling four days, and they finally got within sight of Galveston Island, but they were still on the mainland. So they decided to camp and try to cross the next day. And they reached down to put their bedrolls out by a cottonwood tree, uh, where they heard a very loud and angry rattlesnake. But what's interesting is they decided to sleep there anyway, so they were a little tougher than most of us would have been. Uh, They slept there very carefully, of course. Um, unfortunately, when they woke up, they discovered that a cold front had moved in overnight as they do in Texas and they were soaked with rain and they all of a sudden had a North wind, but the North wind wasn't all that bad because it would blow them toward Galveston Island. So they decided to get in and start rowing to Galveston Island on their way. They ran into, uh, what the men described as a Texian war vessel vessel commanded by Captain William Brown. Now, I'm not sure what this ship actually was. Many say it was the Invincible, but Brown commanded the schooner Liberty from January 1836 until he was relieved by Commodore Charles Hawkins, supposedly in March of 1836. And records suggest that he wasn't given another command until July 1836. However, Franklin and Calder recalled Brown as the commander, as we need to solve that little mystery. Um, When Brown saw the men, and uh, got him near the boat, and learned of the victory at San Jacinto, Captain Brown ordered his 18-pound cannon to be fired in celebration of the victory. And the men recalled that Captain Brown ordered the firing to cease after three rounds, commenting that Old Hawkins, apparently referring to the Texas Navy Commodore, would put him in chains again. So this suggests that perhaps he got his command back sooner than historians previously thought. Anyway, there's some more detail for you. The men proceeded uh, east along Galveston Island to almost the end of the island where they ran into the other ships of the Texas Navy, and they also managed to get hold of what they describe as first-rate whiskey, uh, which, after the trip they had just endured rowing a boat from San Jacinto, I'm sure was welcome. Captain Brown uh, loaned his small boat called a gig to Franklin and Calder and some sailors to help them row the boat to Galveston, and off they went. Now, the scene at Galveston was very interesting. Many of the families who had fled the advancing army during the runaway scrape were encamped in Galveston, along with the provisional President Burnett and the Cabinet, and they were on the eastern end of the island. Now, there are some resources that discuss the government conducting business on a sidewheeler called the Cayuga, But Calder describes the ship as being anchored in the channel opposite the camp. And my research revealed that the camp is approximately near the present-day Coast Guard Station, right across the entrance to the channel leading to the port of Galveston. Uh, The guns from the Cayuga were used for what was then called Fort Travis. Fort Travis was later moved across the bay to the Bolivar Peninsula, and a lighthouse erected on the site of the former fort, which was now renamed Fort Point. So once Fort, Point, Fort Travis was relocated to the Bolivar Peninsula, the old Fort Travis location on Galveston Island was called Fort Point. So Fort Point was the location of the provisional government's camp on Galveston Island. I'll tell you how to get to Fort Point at the end of this episode. Now All the people that heard Brown's guns from his ship eagerly awaited what the guns meant, and uh, some of the records reflect that those people were climbing up on the on the lines of the ships and trying to get a good view of what was happening across the bay. The men, uh, Franklin and Calder, ended up landing on Commodore Hawkins' ship, and the people were informed that the Battle of San Jacinto had been won and Texas was free. Now, I think reading the accounts of this, I think Franklin was extremely excited that they had been able to deliver the news before the steamboat Laura got back and spoiled their four-day mission. Commodore Hawkins left the ship and proceeded to President Burnett's camp and delivered the news to the president. He returned, he left Calder and Franklin on the ship uh, eating and drinking. He returned to tell Calder and Franklin that they needed to take a break from their feast and go down there and give their dispatches to the president. Now, something amusing happened when the Commodore reported to the president. Calder and Franklin, as I mentioned, were partying on the ship and enjoying their hero's welcome. Burnett reportedly got angry that the men, Franklin and Calder, didn't report to him immediately and apparently cursed Secretary of War Rusk and General Sam Houston that they hadn't picked better messengers. Now, uh, we'll discuss this later on, in further episodes, but David Burnett and Sam Houston were political enemies and personal enemies. And there's some reference that they had some business deals that went sour, but suffice to say that Burnett did not like Sam Houston. So even though he just got news that Texas had won her independence, the first thing he thought of was to criticize Houston and Rusk. And um, so anyway, the Commodore stuck up for Franklin and Calder and averted a crisis in that respect. Now another amusing aspect of this adventure was that much of the crowd that was there on Galveston Island didn't believe Franklin that the war had been won. Now those people were preparing to flee to New Orleans, as I mentioned before, and the only thing that had kept them from from leaving up to then was that the winds and the tides were adverse to them sailing out of Galveston. Otherwise, many of the people would have already fled, Uh, and upon hearing the news and not believing Franklin and Calder, um, some of the records show that uh, some of the people wanted to leave for New Orleans anyway, because they weren't sure uh, that Franklin and Calder were telling the truth. In fact, Franklin went for a walk one day, and he overheard a man accusing him and Calder of being deserters and liars. So uh, there was a lot of of uncertainty. Uh, another time, uh, while Franklin and Calder were on the island, a wild rumor spread that a thousand Mexican cavalry had been sighted advancing from the west end of Galveston. Now, apparently nobody gave a thought to how that cavalry got onto that island uh, with no Mexican ships in the area, but anyway, they everybody panicked. Uh, men were assembled, scouts were dispatched, and uh, as the men were getting their weapons ready to march against this advancing cavalry, they discovered that uh, the scouts discovered that some of the families that had encamped west of the headquarters had a big washing day and had hung all their laundry out, which caused somebody to, to raise the alarm that the cavalry was coming. So it was obviously a very tense situation on Galveston Island in April of 1836. Now, before we leave this part of the story, let me mention that Captain Calder went on to become the first sheriff of Brazoria County, He served as a judge later in Brazoria County and Fort Bend County. He was the mayor of the town of Brazoria. He was also the mayor of the town of Richmond, Texas. And uh, then he practiced law in Richmond, Texas. So let's go back to Benjamin Franklin. He obviously had proved himself reliable as an officer, and his legal skills were soon in demand because the young Republic of Texas was about to engage in an act of war against the very United States to whom Sam Houston hoped to join the Republic of Texas. And uh, you heard that right. Texas engaged in an act of war against the United States. So let's talk about that story because this is it relates to Benjamin Cromwell Franklin, and it's also a story that you don't hear a lot about. The fledgling Republic of Texas actually had a Navy, and I'll cover the Texas Navy uh, in future episodes. Mexican ships patrolled the Gulf Coast, to such a a degree that Texas had purchased a 125-ton schooner called the Invincible to ward off the Mexican ships. The ship actually was uh, intended for the African slave trade, but uh, Texas agents Thomas McKinney and Samuel May Williams managed to buy it for Texas. And uh, uh, again, I'm going to do a future episode on Samuel May Williams. He was quite the character. Anyway, the ship was fitted out and commanded by Captain Jeremiah Brown, who was the brother of Captain William Brown that we discussed earlier. And that's that networking thing I talked about in the um, introductory episode of this podcast. So one day the Invincible encountered an American brig named the Pocket and captured the ship. So the Texan Navy actually captured a ship under an American flag. Now, I will say that the pocket turned out to have a false manifest and was loaded with guns and other contraband for the Mexican Army. Uh, So it was an American-owned ship, not an American government ship. But it was under the American flag. Captain Brown seized her and took the cargo. And uh, later, by the way, when Brown sailed to New Orleans to get some work done on the Invincible, he and his crew were arrested for piracy uh, by the Commodore at New Orleans, and those charges were dropped. In any event, President Burnett had a problem. He had an American ship on his hands, and the owners, as you might imagine, were not too happy. And he needed to get this ship seizure litigated and done quickly. And there was one tiny detail, however, that prevented this thing from proceeding through the courts, and that is there were no courts. Texas had no court system. But he did have a reliable lawyer named Benjamin Cromwell Franklin. So David Burnett appointed Franklin as a judge to adjudicate this little issue with the American ship. And uh, this appointment occurred sometime before June 15, 1836, as best I can tell. And it's also reported that the judicial appointment was actually offered first to a gentleman named James Collinsworth, who was later the first Chief Justice of the Republic of Texas Supreme Court. And he also ran for President of the Republic and we'll discuss that in later episodes. Anyway, the matter of the pocket was resolved, so we Will called Benjamin Cromwell Franklin the first judicial officer of the Republic of Texas. Later, Franklin was appointed judge of the 2nd District of Texas on December twentieth, 1836 by President Sam Houston. He served with distinction and then resigned and returned to private life in 1839. He had a private law practice in Galveston. He served several terms in the legislature representing Galveston. He moved to Livingston, Texas, in East Texas for a time, but then he returned to Galveston and he died in 1873 in Galveston. Now, before his death, also in 1873, the Reconstruction Governor E.J. Davis asked Franklin to revise, arrange, and create a digest of the laws of the state of Texas. Now, Franklin refused that task ostensibly because he didn't believe Davis had the power to make such an appointment, but I suspect it probably had more to do with the fact that it was Reconstruction and Davis was almost universally hated in the state of Texas. Anyway, Franklin was elected to the Texas Senate from Galveston in 1873, but unfortunately he died on Christmas Day before he could take the oath of office, and he is buried in the New City Cemetery in Galveston, Texas. So there you have the story of the two earliest judges in the state of Texas. Josiah Bell had a remarkable life of entrepreneurship and participation in the government. He certainly seemed dedicated to his friend Stephen Austin's goals of settling Texas, and he served the colony with distinction. Benjamin Franklin had a fascinating start to his service in Texas. He helped Texas win the independence at San Jacinto, and he continued his public service throughout his life. He obviously was a trusted advisor when he was sent to inform President Burnett of the victory at San Jacinto, and Burnett later trusted him to handle which was what was no doubt a politically sensitive case involving that American ship. The bar of the Brazoria district hated to see him resign the bench, and he remained a trusted and dedicated servant of Texas, and is a great example to those of us who continue to serve this great state. Now, in the introductory episode to this podcast, I told you that one of the things I really enjoyed doing is traveling to the places where these great events occurred and and seeing the places that the people saw back then and etc and we're going to call that getting there so let me tell you how to get there um the capital of austin colony was san felipe de austin so if you go west on i-10 from houston and take the farm to market road 1458 exit Turn north on 1458, and a few miles up on the left, you'll see the old town site of the capital of Austin's colony. There's a big statue of Stephen F. Austin, and there are some other buildings and markers on the site. Um, There's also an old map of Stephen F. Austin's colony, San Felipe de Austin, the town site, on the General Land Office website, which is a very interesting map to look at. That's where Josiah Hughes Bell took care of things for Austin's colony. And Josiah Hughes Bell's town of Columbia, which is now east and west Columbia, can be visited if you drive south on 288 from Houston to Angleton, Texas, and turn west on Highway 35. Now, As for Benjamin Cromwell Franklin, the original document appointing him the first judge of the Republic of Texas, which is signed by Sam Houston as the President of the Republic, as well as the Secretary of State, who was none other than Stephen F. Austin, That document is in the archives of the Harris County District Clerk, located in the Civil Courthouse at 201 Caroline in Houston, and on the second floor of that building is a historic document reading room, and I believe it is available by appointment, but you can also go online and look. Many of those original historical documents have been imaged, so if you will go to the Harris County District Clerk's website, you can see the actual document appointing Benjamin Cromwell Franklin Judge, which he also signed. Uh, Judge Franklin's portrait hangs in the courtroom of what is now the 11th District Court uh, in the Harris County Civil Courthouse, that same building at 201 Caroline. The 11th District Court was that first district court of the Republic of Texas and the court over which Judge Franklin presided. It's just through the years been renamed, so now it's the 11th District Court. And uh, Judge Franklin is buried in the New City Cemetery in Galveston, Texas, which is on Broadway. Well, that wraps it up for our first episode of Wise About Texas. I hope you'll drop a review on iTunes, as well as visit and like the Wise About Texas Facebook page, and don't forget to share the Facebook page. You can find the show on Twitter, at Wise About Texas. So until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.